0: So in this season of Advent, we are taking a look at some Old Testament prophecies uh, that have been deemed by both Jewish people and Christian people to be messianic, meaning about the Messiah, or about the coming of one unique, particular, special person who is anointed by God. And of course, we realize that even though there's an agreement initially between the Jewish people and Christians about the, uh, these prophecies being messianic, there is a fundamental disagreement between Christians and Jews, and that comes down to whether or not Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Of course, Christians believe that he was, and the Jewish People as a whole, largely if you are an adherent to Judaism at least, do not. The root of that disagreement really has to do with a really an insurmountable seemingly insurmountable uh, issue, and that issue is about the nature and the purpose of the Messiah. What was the Messiah co- to come to do? What was his purpose and what was his mission? Jewish Believers interpret these Old Testament prophecies that we've been looking at from a a worldly perspective. They see the Messiah as a man, um, a king of Israel, who will return Israel to its, its former glory, its glory days. And even exceed that in bringing about a sense of global peace on the earth. Well, Christians look at these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and we see them as Christ saw them, as fulfilled in Christ. God himself, God incarnate, who would provide the means by which each of us could have peace, not just with each other, but with the holy God. And so we have Judaism suggesting that the Messiah who's yet to come is a worldly leader and Christians accept the words of Christ and God's word that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, that he was God, and that he came to make peace between God and man. And so last week we looked at Micah 5, and and we recognized that Micah's prophecy not only predicted that the Messiah would be a ruler over Israel, who would be born in Bethlehem, who would usher in this world, this world peace, but that he would be far more than that. And as Micah writes, that he would be part, would be God incarnate, whose mission had far greater consequences for the human race matching the self-proclaimed mission of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to take a look at Isaiah 7, verses 13 to 14. Isaiah 7, verses 13 to 14. And there you'll read, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son, the virgin will conceive, and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, Hebrew for God with us. So like Micah's prophecy, the prophecy was given at a very threatening time for Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel was being overtaken, was being conquered by the nation of Assyria and the people in the southern kingdom of Judah were fearful that that would be their fate as well and so God used Isa, Isaiah and Micah who were contemporaries to reassure the southern kingdom that Judah would not be conquered but would be protected from Assyria but he also God also used this prophecy of Isaiah to foreshadow an even greater deliverance in the future, a deliverance brought about by the Messiah. Now, today's Jewish scholars or theologians would argue against the virgin birth of the Messiah, suggesting that Isaiah simply had in his mind a young woman would give birth to a child not necessarily a virgin. But as you do the research and you look at the historical context and of the language that's used by Isaiah, there's no doubt that he was indicating that the Messiah would have a miraculous birth, that he would be born of a virgin. And of course, we know the Christmas story, don't we? That clearly indicates that Mary was a virgin. And Matthew, who writes in his gospel, He references Isaiah's prophecy, the one we just read, Isaiah 7. And he links Jesus of Nazareth to the fulfillment of that specific prophecy that a virgin will conceive and will give birth to the Messiah. These are the words of Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Now, a virgin birth is certainly a showstopper. It's miraculous, it's stupendous, it's incredible, it's miraculous, it's extraordinary. But there's so much more at play here than God just trying to grab people's attention by making a point of Jesus having an amazing birth. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which our entire faith is built. You might not have thought of it that way. Yeah. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which our entire faith is built. It is not the it is the only way that we can be sure that we are redeemed by a holy god now let me explain that in order for our sins as dale has said in order for our sins to be atoned or paid for redeemed or forgiven our redeemer needs to be both fully god and fully man what does that mean how can someone be both god and man Well, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ explains that. Jesus was born of Mary, but there was no natural father. God himself, the Holy Spirit, created with Mary an embryo in Mary's womb. That was both human and divine. The result was a child who was God incarnate, or God in the flesh. God's word teaches us very clearly that Jesus was fully man. We read in Hebrews 2, verse 14 through to 18, these words. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not the angel he helps, but Abraham's descendants, or people. For this reason, he had to to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So God is, uh, Scripture, God's word, is, is so clear that Jesus Christ was fully man. And we know, don't we, as we read through the Gospels, the experiences he had and the emotions that he experienced that we can relate to, the hunger and the thirst, the physiological issues, but also the emotions, the, the grief when he heard that his friend Lazarus had died. The joy when he had children sitting on his lap. Just a full range of emotion. Jesus was fully man. But scripture also teaches us that he was fully God. Let me read from John's Gospel, chapter 1. John is writing about his good friend and his mentor as well as his God, Jesus Christ, who he'd spent three years with. He says these words about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and then he says the most incredible thing, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness. This is John the Baptist he's talking about. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness or a forerunner to the light. And the true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which is own but that his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was both fully man, but as John says, he was fully God. The word was God. Now there's some really profound implications attached to those two statements. That Jesus was fully man and fully God. And they have to do with God's ultimate purpose in sending Messiah. You see, the Messiah's humanity was critical to counteract the damning effects of the actions of our original fathers, Ma and Pa, Adam and Eve. We read in chapter 5 of Romans the consequences of Adam and Eve's (coughs) disobedience, or their sin. We read in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Did you see how that worked? Because Adam and Eve died, All of their descendants are by nature sinful. That is the epic consequence of them eating that piece of fruit, of disobeying God, of rejecting the authority of God. That was the consequence. All of humanity, every descendant of theirs, was sinful at birth. Here, in those words, the Apostle Paul is explaining how all of humanity became sinful because of the choice of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And he concludes in that same passage by explaining the equally consequential effect of Jesus Christ's decision, his redemptive act of incarnating, of living, of dying, and then of resurrecting. Paul writes to the Romans, again in chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, just as one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, that's Adam's sin, just as Adam's sin resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that's the righteous act of Jesus Christ that we just celebrated and remembered, the righteous act of God in Jesus Christ, obeying the Father, taking our penalty on the cross. Just So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many were made righteous. You see, Adam's choice and Christ's choice both had consequences for all of humanity. And this is why the Messiah had to be human. I like the fact that the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on how people dealt with sin in the Jewish nation of Israel, how they they sought forgiveness, how they approached a holy God was inadequate because it was done with animals, not with a man. <laughs> he writes in, in Hebrews 10, verse four, it's impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me, but a body, a human body you prepared for me, with burnt offerings and sin offerings you weren't pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my Lord, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, even though they they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first, that is the sacrifices of the animals, to establish the second, the single sacrifice of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So can you see that the Messiah had to be fully man? He had to be fully man in order for him to be in a position to be our redeemer. So why did the Messiah have to be fully God then? Well, the simple answer is this, the Messiah had to be sinless, had to be without sin. You see, like Adam, Christ had to be sinless. We think of Adam as a sinner, but before he sinned, he was sinless. He was pure, he was set apart, he was not defiled. He was right with God, he was righteous. He was perfect. And so was Jesus Christ, sinless, right? And so, the Messiah had to be sinless just like Adam. Was before he sinned. Now, if I borrow a tool from a friend, let's say from, you've got to see Dale's shop. It's unbelievable, and and, and he takes care of everything so well; it's it's immaculate. And uh, he's got a bazillion tools in there, many of which I wouldn't even know what to do with. But if I borrowed, let's say, a tool from Dale, and I went and you know used it in my way <laughs> and ruined it a reasonable exchange for me to return a damaged tool to Dale? Well, of course not, right? (laughs) If I borrowed a perfectly good tool, I should return a perfectly good tool to him. I'd have to go out and buy a, a brand new perfect tool, right? And so that thinking comes into mind when we think about this idea of the consequences of Adam's sin, and the consequences of Jesus' sin. A sinless man, Adam, introduced sin to all of humanity. It had to be a sinless man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to introduce the antidote for that sin. The antidote, the antidote that would erase the consequence of Adam's sin. A sinful man, a baby born of Mary and Joseph, would be inadequate because he would be by nature sinful. And therefore, the Messiah had to be fully man, and he had to be sinless, he had to be fully God. A perfect man, a sinless man would be the only suitable candidate to undo the consequences of Adam's sin. God's word is clear that no man or woman who has ever lived, lived would be a suitable candidate, because as Paul writes and was read earlier today, all have sinned. Scripture also makes clear that Jesus was sinless. When Paul writes the Corinthians in five, First Corinthians five twenty-one, he says, "God made him who had no sin to be sin for us." so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we sing the songs around Easter about how our sins were placed on Christ. Our sins were impugned to Christ. But before that, before the cross, Jesus Christ was sinless. He who had no sin was made sin for us. And so let's conclude. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the Messiah. He was born of a virgin, making him fully human. And he was sinless because he was fully divine. He was fully God and fully man. And it is through the miracle of the incarnation that we have the antidote to sin and peace, if we accept that antidote, peace with a holy God. All we have to do is accept this truth as truth. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the long awaited Messiah? Do you believe that he was born of a virgin? Do you believe that he was fully man, but fully God, that the Virgin Mary was became pregnant through an act of God, through the Holy Spirit? If you believe that, you believe that Jesus Christ was uniquely qualified to hang on a cross, to take upon himself, your sin, and for, in so doing, provide redemption for your soul. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's it's mind-boggling to us. It baffles us. It's beyond our comprehension, the wisdom of the Incarnation. Hopefully this morning we got a little glimpse of what was in your mind. We look at it from the fact that we know that if we believe on Jesus Christ crucified, who died to take upon himself the penalty for our sin, that he bore our sin, that he paid our penalty, that... We should have been on that cross, not him. If we believe that, we can have a right relationship with you, a holy God. This is how we approach this, but we are so pleased, we are so glad to know that the forensics of it makes so much sense that Jesus Christ needed to be born of a virgin. Because although he needed to be man, he had also to be fully God. I thank you, Lord, that even in your day, there were those, not many, but there were those who recognized And attested to the fact that you were the Christ, the Messiah. Lord, we are so grateful that we are the recipients of your great mission of mercy. May this Christmas be a season in which we are full of thanksgiving. That you were born of a virgin so that you could fulfill a mission that has changed everything for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.